Welcome to Living Out Loud, Storytelling for Social Change, the podcast where we come together as a community to share our stories and consider alternative perspectives on a wide range of topics. By sharing our stories, each and every one of us can help create the world we want to live in. Storytelling has the power to open minds, touch hearts, and inspire empathy and solidarity. It can move us to think and then act. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the faculty, staff, and student guests of each episode, but do not necessarily represent the views of Merrimack College. Hi, this is Michael Senoff, producer of Living Out Loud. The episode you're about to hear is part two of a three-part series highlighting women in male-dominated fields, and specifically women in STEM on campus here at Merrimack College. In this episode, Dr. Zoe Sherman shares her journey through several male-dominated fields, leading up to her current role as Merrimack College's Economics Department Chair. The audio you're about to hear was part of an interview recorded by Tiffany Began Stearns. I'm Zoe Sherman. I'm Associate Professor of Economics and currently the Chair of the Economics Department. And so I teach uh, economics classes at the introductory and advanced levels. Uh, and I also do research. So I am currently on my third male-dominated field. Uh, as an undergraduate, I studied mathematics and also music. Um, I didn't have a particular career plan associated with that. I was always very impractical and just chose what I thought was interesting at the time to think about um, and didn't have particular career plans at the end. So um, so I really liked studying math, uh, which was um, which was a male-dominated field, still is. Uh, I got to the end of my degree um, and wasn't particularly excited about career options that followed up on that. Um, but in the music part of my life, I'd encountered a piano that I was trying to practice on that was broken. And I thought, oh, I could learn how to fix pianos. That's a practical thing that people might pay me to do, <laughs> um, since most people don't know how to do it. So then I went to trade school. Um, which was another male-dominated place to be, uh, and I became a piano technician. I worked at New England Conservatory for about half a dozen years, um, maintaining the pianos there, um, and while I was in the course of doing that, I missed the academic experience. I missed reading complicated, difficult books and having a teacher help me understand them and have classmates who are working on them, too. Um, so I went to UMass Boston and I did an American Studies master's program, um, which I treated mostly like an amped up book club. Um, but as I got to the end of that, I had gotten really curious about economic issues in the course of studying the kind of cultural and historical stuff that we got into in American Studies. I thought, gosh, the economy seems really important <laughs> as an undergraduate. I had given no attention whatsoever. I didn't take a single economics class. I thought, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure I'm not interested. Um, but by the time I was 25, I thought, oh, maybe I am interested. Maybe this matters. <laughs> um, so I, I took a couple of economics classes, or I think I took just one I managed to fit in as an elective during my American studies degree. And I, I got to the end of that degree and I thought, I could, I could study some more economics. That would, that would be interesting to me. Um, and so at that point I turned my life upside down and quit, quit my job and <laughs> applied to grad school. I also had a baby at the same time. Um, so I, I turned everything upside down at once and I started, uh, 
my doctoral program in economics. I went to UMass Amherst um, when I was 30 in the fall of 2009. So it was another um, male dominated field, less so at UMass than at some programs. Women were about a third of the uh, graduate students. And um, if you stay in school long enough, then you come out the other end with not all that much to do, but stay in school again as a teacher. <laughs> so I have been in school as a teacher since then. Also in my undergraduate program, I went to a very small school. I went to Simons Rock College. And so there were, at that point, the math cohort was small enough that it was, it was not a group culture in the same way. Like there was this handful of individual people who were the math nerds and there, I wasn't the only woman in that, um, in that group. And it was such a small group that, that the disparity wasn't like an obvious statistically significant thing, right? It was, it was small. Um, although our, our long-term full-time faculty um, were, were mostly male, but they were also very um, supportive. So I didn't so much notice it on campus when we did other kinds of events or when I went to a, a math summer program the, su the summer before I started college, um, I, I noticed there <laughs> that there was a, a disproportion. Um, math is also known for having a lot of very socially awkward people. <laughs> so I would say of the subset of people who knew how to socialize in some semi-normal way, that was a little bit less gender skewed. Um, so that was my, my math camp uh, summer. Um, in so let, let me see. And piano tuning was a very different kind of world. Um, for one thing, I was going into a much more age integrated space. Colleges are very age segregated, right? You hang out with people who were born within about two years of when you were born. Right? Um, but trade school was involved people who were just out of high school. It involved people who were career changing in their fifties and everything in between. Um, so, uh, so there was there was a, an interesting dynamic there. Um, the The trade school that I went to was um, was not fifty fifty by any means, but it was um, it was a fairly comfortable place for me. And the job that I had, um, I also mostly got along fine with my coworkers, but I was aware of being an oddity. And I was part of a team of, uh, fluctuated a little bit during the years I was there, but three or four of us were there full time. There are a lot of pianos at a music conservatory requiring a lot of continuous care. Um, so there were three, three or four of us and it was me and middle-aged men. And I was in my early twenties at the time. All right. So it was me and middle-aged men and I felt comfortable with them, but I was it was clear that other people in the institution were always a little perplexed to see me there. Um, so we we were our workshop was right next to um, the supply closet for the cleaning staff. And I remember working on um, I was standing at the bandsaw working on something. And I became aware that somebody was just kind of staring through the door because right? here I was at the bandsaw and this was like he'd never seen somebody standing at the at the bandsaw before. Um, 
And we were also really friendly with the maintenance department. And I remember crossing paths as I was going to work on something in one practice studio and he was going to deal with something else somewhere else in the building. And we're both carrying drills. Um, And this like blew his mind. He thought it was hilarious that we were both carrying drills. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so there was was also, I remember one instance when one of the faculty came um, and was looking for one of my coworkers and came into the shop and asked me if anybody was there. Like, am I nobody? Here I am. (laughs) You know? Um, Yeah. So I was aware of being the minority in that sense. When I got to graduate school, I was in economics. Um, So I was, I was starting an economics program. So this is my third male dominated field that I'm entering um, as a, as a newbie. Um, I also had a toddler with me at the time. And um, the, the graduate program that I attended was less skewed than the discipline as a whole, but still women were a minority. I also noticed in my cohort, we, we jokingly referred to ourselves as the family values cohort because a lot of us had kids. Um, you know, more than usual, there were about a dozen of us and four of us had kids. And then there were some other parents in the years before and after me. And I noticed this pattern that male grad students um, who had kids also had a wife who was not working full time. So their finances were extremely constrained because grad student stipends are not huge, but their time was not constrained. They had somebody else at home to deal with that stuff. Um, The women who had kids uh, were in better financial situations. We had employed husbands. We did not have time. Um, I was was attending classes in in UMass out in Amherst, but we hadn't relocated the whole family because we had these longer roots in Boston. So I was basically a single parent from Sunday to Thursday. Um, was the way our, our scheduling worked in a typical week. Uh, so when daycare closed at 4.15, that was it. I was not going to do anything else related to the department for the rest of the day. I never attended a single seminar because they all started at four, right? Um, and, and the men didn't have that issue. Um, I got to Merrimack and I was once again um, sort of the, the young female surrounded by men who were 20 to 30 years older than I was. Um, and I, I joked when I got here that when I described it, it sounded terrible, uh, but I actually had really supportive colleagues. Um, so they put a lot of they put a lot of trust in me as someone they thought could um, could be part of the transition to a to the future of the department, they were all thinking about retirement within a within the foreseeable future, and uh, three of them have retired since then. Um, so they put a lot of trust in me. They had a lot of respect for my work, uh, and that was really that was really great that um, that I was able to find that space. So now our our department is composed of three full time faculty. Um, there's another woman about my age, and then one of my senior male colleagues is still here. The, the interview um, was kind of, it was, it was my first time on the you know, academic job market. Um, and they, they knew that they wanted to hire somebody who could teach uh, issues of gender because the person who had retired, whose position I was gonna be taking um, was also a, a female faculty member and had taught the economics of gender class. 
Um, and she had actually been very involved in starting the Women's and Gender Studies program at Merrimack. Um, so, so from the from my application packet, they knew that I was one of their leading candidates. And then they were they talked so much that I felt like I didn't say all that much during the interview. Right? They they were kind of excited about. Um, trying to, to show the department as a place where I could make a career, which, uh, which was great. But I thought, did they want to know anything else that I didn't say? I didn't say that much. When we look at individual interactions, most of them that I've had have been good. I've had supportive mentors. I have had uh, teachers who took me seriously. I've had colleagues who took me seriously. Um, occasionally something comes up in an inter individual interaction where I think that's odd, right? Um, so one that I remember is from while I was in, in graduate school and I was talking to one of my um, fellow students in the program uh, about starting my dissertation and the advisor that I was going to be working with. And he jumped to this assumption that I would be doing something about gender. Um, I forget exactly how he worded his, his question, but it was sort of like, oh, so are you gonna be doing this, this, this? Um, sort of relating the work of this advisor who was male uh, to, to a gendered lens. And I was sort of perplexed by that. Uh, I thought, is your gender the only thing that you can talk about? I don't think so. <laughs> gender is not the primary lens. I try to pay attention to it, but it's not my first um, my first tool in my toolkit. It's one that I uh, sort of keep around for, for, for the instances when I think I need it. Um, and he would probably be horrified if I called him on it. Um, and so I, I did that uh, socialization to avoid conflict thing and didn't call him on it. I just corrected him gently. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, things like that would come up um, sometimes. And there's also that aggregate level research. And economists like to collect data and they can be self-reflective sometimes. Um, and so there've been some studies about gender disparity in the discipline um, and things come out of the analysis like when there are co-authored papers, which is common in economics. Um, if a co-authored paper has both male and female authors, when it comes time for faculty reviews, when, it, when we look at how much credit people get for those papers, when it comes time for tenure decisions or promotion decisions, um, men get credit for co-authored papers, women get very little credit. Um, the ordering of the names doesn't really tell you anything about how much each person contributed. It could be that the woman did 90% of the work, right? But, um, but systematically, if it's co-authored and there are men and women involved, it's assumed to be a serious contribution from the man and not from the woman. Um, there was recently a study of how male and female presenters are treated in seminars. Uh, and that's a big part of the economics discipline is presenting research in a seminar setting. And there's often very um, active questioning from, from the audience. Uh, but these researchers Got, got lots of people to, to participate in collecting the data and they managed to standardize how they were collecting the data and they timed how long does it take before the first question? Are the questions um, dismissive questions? Are they constructive questions? What kinds of questions are they getting? 
And they found that women get interrupted faster. Um, they get asked more dismissive questions. They get talked over more. So they don't get a chance to even explain what their research is about before um, primarily the men in the room start picking it apart or trying to tell their story instead. There's a, a tension, I think, between wanting to engage in these really biased spaces and fix them and just giving up on those spaces and creating a different space, um, right? It's like the, the issue I remember um, Jill Kerr Conway in her memoirs writing about, did she want to be in a history department or a women's studies department? Um, and she went with history and she said, I know I'm going to be surrounded by sexist men, but I want to change the discipline. Um, and it's really important that some people make both choices, right? That we, we shouldn't all make the same choice. And we each have to figure out which of those strategies we're going to, to follow. Um, so I, I, so far I've stuck with economics. Um, I know plenty of people who've, uh, who've ended up in other kinds of departments or other kinds of settings. Um, for sometimes for gender bias reasons, sometimes also because the discipline of economics in many departments can be very narrow about what kinds of methodologies it'll consider uh, legitimate and what kinds of topics of research get respect. So, um, so I also know some men who've left economics, not specifically because they were um, they were discriminated against for identity, but because of their interests not being respected their research interests not being respected. Um, so so I, I, I find it really frustrating. I also get really frustrated in trying to figure out what are the mechanisms for making it better. Like one of the issues that comes up a lot is um, the balance in publications, right? You look at who writes articles that get published in journals and it's not proportional to the number of men and women in the, in the population. It's not even proportional to the number of men and women um, in the discipline, I don't think, um, because of the heavier teaching and service loads that women on average tend to take on. So, so one issue that, that we think about is, okay, we have to diversify the gatekeepers, right? And on many dimensions, not just gender. Um, we have to diversify the gatekeepers. And so there are some journals that I'm involved with um, that have very diverse and gender balanced editorial boards. And the table of contents of each issue is still usually overwhelmingly male. So then I think, okay, am I really a gatekeeper or am I just coaching men who don't write as well as I do to get their papers published? Maybe I should just be writing my own papers instead. I'm not sure that this is a useful exercise. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's frustrating and it's not knowing what to do is the most frustrating part about it. So when I think about, um, the distribution of students in the major, uh, I think back to my first year at Merrimack and in the fall, I taught two sections of the introductory, uh, economics class. And then I taught one elective on the economics of gender and those the economics of gender class was an even split. Um, the introductory classes were even enough that I didn't think to count. I just sort of saw a room full of people. Um, and 
then when I, towards the end of the semester, I got my roster for the following semester and I saw who was going to be in my elective the next time. And it was not a gender themed class. It was a different elective I was going to be teaching. And um, I think there were about a dozen students who had registered for the class and only one of them was a woman, uh, as best I could tell based on the names on the roster. And I thought, wait, what? <laughs> what is happening here? Uh, and so I, I did some counting on my introductory classes. And I saw when I took the time to count that, uh, that in the introductory class, men outnumbered women a little bit. It was about a 60-40 split instead of a 40-40 split. So I said, okay, there's a little bit of filtering that happens before even the introductory level. And then I thought, well, if we didn't think about gender, we would assume that the people most likely to go on would be the people who perform best in the introductory level. They find, oh, this is something I'm good at. I could, I could go on in this discipline. So I filtered, you know, who is the, I forget what percentile I cut off on, but you know, but who's, who's getting A's or who's in the top 20% of performers in this class. And there it was slightly skewed towards women. Women were doing slightly better in the class than men, but they still weren't signing up for electives. Uh, and so I had to think about, well, why, why is that? I can understand a lot of the hesitation, like it's pretty clear to me why people wouldn't take economics to begin with, because I didn't take economics to begin with. So like that, that I understand fully. But once you've done it and succeeded in it, then what happens? <laughs> What's happening at that next level? Um, and we've had some years where we have an even number of male and female graduates, but it, in the years when it's not even, it never tips toward women, right? In the years when it's not even, it tips toward men. Um, and when maybe earlier on, when I got here and it was the, the faculty were four middle-aged uh, men and me, then maybe we could say, oh, they have trouble seeing themselves in the, in the discipline because the faculty are so male. But now our faculty are two women and one man. Um, one man. So now mostly they do see women. And there's something about the socialization that goes far beyond our department that makes the representation in the department itself not a strong enough um, counter-programming. Uh, Merrimack's math department is also um, very female and it's not, it's under-resourced and treated as a service department. It's also, it's hard to know for sure how students are reacting to us. Um, there are a couple of instances here and there where I suspect that a male student sort of took me less seriously um, because of whatever kinds of ingrained cultural gender assumptions he was carrying around. Um, mostly, I think the authority of the position um, kind of overrides the gender to enough of an extent that I, I think um, that I think I can I can carry out my my role, but I, it is true that I don't really know what relations among students are like outside the the classroom, um, and so I don't know whether whether there are things about the the student cohort interactions that make women feel less comfortable um, persisting in the major. When I think about how to make the discipline better, uh, I think part of it comes from curriculum design that economics historically has tended to 
unthinkingly assume that that male experience is universal experience. Um, and also a kind of European, North American, industrialized world kind of experience is universal experience. Uh, it, has, it has made those kinds of moves in the way the theory is built. So of course that means if that's not the experience you come from and you go to a classroom and the theory that you're studying says nothing about your life, it's not gonna be that interesting. Um, so, so curriculum design is an important part of, of how we try to make it better. Uh, and and I, I try to do that. Um, there are also conventions of the discipline that are really hard to get around. And so it's, it's a continual challenge to, to reconstruct the curriculum in those ways. Um, but, but I think that's, that's an important task that we have for trying to make it better for students. So much of this involves trying to fix things at a systemic level, but we all just have our individual lives to, to live. And so it's very difficult to figure out uh, what, what's an individual coping strategy um, and, and how do I make it work in the system as it is? Is there anything I can do to shift the, the system that we've got? Uh, I think the, the cliche about finding mentors is, is true. Um, and if it's a field that is, that is male dominated, that might mean um, identifying men who actually can function well as allies. Some men can't, right? Some of them won't, um, won't do, um, either because they're actively hostile or because they, they're, they're gender blind in an unhelpful way. Um, some, in some instances, in some ways, gender blindness can, can be helpful, right? That you're not being singled out or stigmatized. But then if they're not seeing the specific particular obstacles, um, then it becomes a problem. Um, so, so uh, yeah, being able to, to identify the, the potential allies, and that might mean searching for the right institution. Some institutions are, are better than others. Um, I, I have had the good fortune um, never to have had somebody in a position of power over me uh, be really hostile or harassing. Um, I, I lucked into workplaces where the, the really hostile, harassing, misogynist people were not in my department and were not my direct superiors. Right? Um, and if that weren't the case in an institution where I landed, that systematically puts a tax on the people who have to evade it, right? But we end up having to, to look elsewhere. Um, that's part of the reason we get these disparate outcomes um, because there's this extra burden of, of having not being able to access any institution, but having to find the ones that are um, that you can that you can thrive in. Um, so it's disappointing advice, I guess, but um, but it's uh, it, it's a challenge to to navigate a systemic problem as an individual trying to use individual coping skills. Well, I I don't know if there's a place to to knit this in, but this kind of thought that I that I think about a lot um, is when we're interested in, in diversifying or making uh, a, something more equitable, uh, one of the things we think about is career ladders and promoting people from underrepresented groups into positions of authority, uh, which is really important. And at the same time, <laughs> I worry that the outcome um, is that 
when the work is being done by people of conventionally lower status, that the work itself gets viewed as less skilled, um, less important, right? So in the example with, um, with the editorial board of a journal, instead of intellectual leadership, right, as it diversifies, it becomes a kind of service, right? Instead of, um, and, and that goes probably even more so for positions um, administering professional organizations, right? Where there's a lot of kind of grunt work involved in the logistics of running an organization. And that becomes a kind of service burden work instead of a position of authority and influence. Um, and so, so that's one of the frustrating obstacles in trying to improve conditions. Uh, economists like to, um, some economists, right, like to do these labor market studies and categorize labor as skilled or unskilled. Um, there's no such thing as unskilled labor, right? There's respected labor and there's disrespected labor. There's no such thing as unskilled labor. Got an idea for an episode or want to join our team? Email us at livingoutloud at merrimack.edu. Executive producers are Deborah Michaels and Tiffany Biegenstearns. This episode was produced by Tiffany Biegenstearns and Michael Sunoff. Audio engineering and editing by Michael Sunoff. Living Out Loud is made possible with the generous support of a Provost Innovation Grant and assistance from the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning.